This is Altruistic, where we speak with pioneers in the race to zero and unpack the lessons from their experiences for you, our community of impact professionals. I'm your host, Seth Hamid, and in this episode, we're going to talk about circular packaging. You may already be familiar with the increasing global push for circularity, or you may still be finding your way. We're going to dive deep into the substrate, no pun intended, and come to terms with what this means for brand owners and packagers around the world in our conversation with Safia Qureshi. Safia is founder and CEO of Club Zero. Safia, thank you so much for joining us. You are very welcome. I couldn't say no to this, seeing as we, we know each other from past lives. So this is a great excuse to come together and talk about a really important topic, which currently is, is embracing both of us. So I'm excited. Absolutely. 14 years, one husband, one baby, and one COVID <laughs> dog later. Safia, 14 years ago when we last met, which is an incredibly long time and reminds us both sadly how, how old we are now, um, you were a young, incredibly talented, upcoming architecture student. Oh, and yes, now <laughs> you're running one of, I think, the UK's most exciting sustainability scale-ups. Thank you. What's the, what's the story there? Well, I mean, I think there's multiple things that transition you from from being an architect to an entrepreneur. This is a, it's a very different journey. But what I would say is my DNA was always from the beginning about putting things in the right place. It was kind of like a really strange desire to define where things belong and making sure that those things are designed well. And if you think about architects at large, we're obsessed with designing for well-being, but we do it at scale, right? So we think about cities, we think about master planning, we think about buildings, we think about interior spaces. These are things that we we do day in, day out. So when, when it comes to sustainability, also we're incredibly regulated as an industry. We have to follow very, very strict guidelines on what can be designed and what can't be designed. And that very much was starting to be shaped by climate change was being shaped by overall consumption as a student going through the whole process and qualifying and, and you know becoming an architect and practicing for many years what I felt was lacking was and well there were a few things first of all I never felt I could really build for everybody I felt I was just designing things for a very small group of people my vision was always to have things that were very public and that were very open and so my own inner brief wasn't really being answered. And yeah, you get a lot of, you know, like having South Asian parents, you know, having spent so much time and dedication and training and becoming an architect, the thought of changing your career path can, can become quite a difficult thing, not just to explain to others, but to yourself. So for a long time, I was just like, well, if I'm not pleased with this, what is it that I'm going to be pleased with? And how do I make sure... I don't abandon what I do. I'm, I'm very much a closer. I hate the idea of just not doing something properly and moving on. And so chapter one was becoming an architect and being an architect. And I went into chapter two with the mindset that I'm now going to be an entrepreneur and I'm going to use everything that I've understood, everything that I've, I've been taught and learned from amazing people around me to figure out how I can apply those skills to things that will be more public, will be more open, and will answer a brief that's bigger than just a building. So it's systemic, it's systems, it's it's things that, you know, right now, I, I, at that point in time, I didn't know what it was, but I just wanted to open my mind up to it. So 
yeah, so I set up a design studio with a really, really amazing friend of mine. And for the first year, we just did a lot of fun projects. And Club Zero, which was uh, at that time called Cup Club, was just a side project. It was just an evaluation of how do we simplify our global supply chains? How do we distribute things in a more sustainable way? Why are we looking at global distribution in single-use packaging? It's kind of, you know, resulting in this enormous crisis around single-use plastics. And we know recycling doesn't work. And so there must be a better system. There must be a better design. There must be something that we can do that makes this a bit more effective and reduces the amount of CO2 that we consume. So it was just literally a design brief. It was just a thought and it started off as a sketch. And years later, we are where we are. Safia, two of the things I love about what you've just said. One is the idea of an inner brief. And I'm I'm actually going to reuse that. So I hope you haven't uh, got it <laughs> trademarked. Because it, it really is quite a nice way of thinking about an individual's purpose, an individual's yeah, mission. And totally. as a mission-driven company ourselves at Altruistic, we, we like to think that actually everyone joins us with an inner brief totally. to, be, to have an impact in the world. Uh, the second thing I really like about what you've described is also that design thinking mm. that prompts us to almost think if we were to redesign this entire space, mm. what would it look like? And one of the ways in which I've seen this be conceptualized, at least, is also in the energy system, where we tend to think about what would an ideal energy system look like if you were just to redesign this. And mm. often you'd have, you know, maybe a hydrogen-based system or a combination of peer-to-peer and, and so on. And, and the thing that stands in the way in the energy space, and I think this is true in the material use space as well, mm. is incentives and kind of legacy sure. capex, legacy ways of doing things. And so... At Club Zero, or at least, you know, just from the circularity perspective, how do you think about overcoming incentives that are already there, whether working with your customers or in this system? Look, you have to be empathetic because you know that what you are proposing is a systemic change. It's not a step change. When you're looking at the market as an entrepreneur, you have two options. You can either say, okay, I'm going to have a product that's going to be ready for market literally like yesterday because it's a step change and there's going to be an enormous opportunity. Or you could say, well, by the time I get this built, actually, I would have missed the boat. And for us, it was very much that. There was so much to figure out and design and think that it couldn't be a step change. It couldn't be incremental. It had to be something that was substantial. So there is a lot of empathy because, you know, and I've sat in working groups with the World Economic Forum, for example, where we've had about 17 CPGs and major brands come in. And we know that they are at a point where they know that they need to change. We know they're at a point where they have incredible amounts of capex and infrastructure that's designed for to do things in one way and that's it and we know that nobody's going to come over and say well we'll pay you to to write that off your balance sheet and and replace that with something that's more sustainable that's unlikely I mean, maybe government studies subsidies will be there eventually uh, who knows i doubt it but um it's going to be at a cost of how high is climate risk. And I'm sure these people are speaking to the likes of BlackRock and everybody else is what is the cost or what's the climate risk and what value is that? And then on the other side, would it be more effective long term to actually change that? So we know that those are the high level conversations that these large corporations are having. I know just from my own much smaller operations, we have a lot of CapEx and when things need to change, which looks like they will because the European Union is basically shaping reuse 
standards around us as we are moving through this process, which will impact some of our own physical products and some of our own CapEx investments. And ours are minuscule in terms of scale compared to these much larger corporations. So I empathize to some degree, but I also know that this is just part of a change development progress that we need to make. And I know that with businesses, your bottom line, you need to accept that a certain amount of that has to go into continuous improvement, right? So you have to have an operational sort of balance sheet, P&L, where you say, this amount of profits will go towards the business's next 10 years of development, innovation, and setup. Without that, you, you, you'll be a loss-making business very soon. There's definitely very little which will move if legislation and governance didn't push them in that direction. We certainly believe that. We can see that. And so that plays a very large and important factor. I'm going to come back to the governance point, but before I do... Uh, our customers at Altruistic tend to be you know, some of the world's largest CPG and food service companies. And as you, as you probably will agree, often the business sustainability teams in these organizations are incredibly passionate, motivated, excited to actually drive change. One of their main challenges is how do I actually find allies in other parts of the business or how do I start rolling this out towards the line and towards operations? And I think that that tool of empathy and actually understanding that this is a shift, it's going to be painful, it's going to be difficult, there are going to be you know, trade-offs, is a really important one. Do you have any advice for these business sustainability teams, just having navigated this with, with companies, what helps when you're trying to convince like a, a cafe management to actually shift its, its entire way of doing business, right? Or any one of your customers for that matter? Sales. You either have to make the money or uh, save the money. So... That's a very binary way. So we do it in both ways. Through a lot of our research, we found that it's cheaper to advertise around sustainability points. So if you are advertising, let's say you've just launched a more sustainable packaging line for your beverage or food, the cost of acquisition will be lower because you'll simply have a higher conversion for that particular ad. So marketing spends goes down. On the other side, if you build in loyalty for your product, you're more likely to have increase in sales. Now, with the circular economy, what's interesting is you can drive more product to a customer if you are already picking up some form of packaging from them, right? Let's say you're a subscription for a refillable deodorant, right? Now, it's very unlikely that I'm going to switch to another brand if I've already started that one-off process and I'm getting refillable cartridges. Now, the, the idea is that I'm getting refillable cartridges often through the post. I might then move into other types of products. You're building product loyalty with the brand. That will increase your sales. So the circular economy, this idea of like rotating things in the circular motion is seen to be a way of building long-term loyalty with not just your existing customer base, but then uh, combine that with marketing ad spends to find newer acquisitions and then bringing them back into that loyalty loop. That's that's what we've seen has worked really well. That's super exciting. Yeah. Uh, and having just looked at the waste space uh, a fair bit over the years, what I've often found in the analysis that I was part of at McKinsey and otherwise is that the the kind of cost of actually getting the product back, sorting it, separating it right in a waste system. All of that can be prohibitive. 
what does the route back look like? Is it literally someone going and collecting the used package and kind of bringing it back? Are there ways to drive efficiency there? Is there a, a Hermes or a DPD kind of involved actually on using spare capacity to bring something back the same way? How does that work? We work with established recyclers because when you're building partnerships up in the industry, you've got to find where's the revenue share opportunity and who is the best partner for you to exchange this rev share business because ultimately it's their it's their existing industry which will get impacted the most by your current business model, right? So reuse is going to impact the recycling model the most. So we build partnerships up with recyclers and we say, this isn't going to kill your business. It's actually adding revenue share to your existing customer base. And over time, which you don't have any choice in the matter, regulation will move this towards more reusability. You might as well start establishing an understanding of it now with us. We have a partnership with the likes of First Mile, which is one of the largest recyclers here in London. And we have a few others as well that are in the pipeline. We we operate in a way where they are championing us, we are championing them. And it's through their existing infrastructure and their their existing fleet. So they're not adding additional fleet onto the roads. Those fleets are doing other kinds of pickups and drop-offs. We essentially just, you know, put more postcodes onto their existing routing route. So that's that's basically it. We don't own those fleets. We personally don't move anything. We provide all the technology and we track everything. So from our perspective, they're doing all the bits of the business that we don't want to do. And that's their bread and butter anyway. So it's a great collaboration in that way. And, and Safia, one of the hypotheses around how circularity and sustainability can start to make sense for a business mm. is that you can also add on a bit of a price premium yeah. when, when doing business. Do you find that that's the case in your business model as well? Well, I mean, we don't have a choice right now. We are definitely more expensive, right? So not, we don't advertise ourselves to be the cheapest. That's probably going to happen in maybe five to 10 years time. We could be price parity with the cheapest option. But right now we are at price parity with compostable packaging. And so if you are buying you know, any sort of packaging that has any kind of bio liners that can go into a composting facility, you're already paying a slightly more premium price to the cheapest option in the market. And so that's our benchmarks. We wouldn't put it up further because, again, we want this to be something that's scalable. So we want the market at the moment that's buying compostable packaging. That's our target market. That's our profile for customers. We don't look at ones who are buying polystyrene or items that clearly have come from Asia and are at like four pence per unit. We, we know that we cannot compete against that kind of pricing. So we don't have that conversation because it commercially doesn't work for us. So that's the way that we position ourselves in, in the market is if you're already on the path of buying compostable, you're already thinking about more sustainable packaging. And so the switch to reuse isn't going to be a big jump. And, and Safia, could you just give a little more shape to the real examples you're describing? And mm. what for me is always the iconic product of your business has been the coffee cup, right? That sort of product. But it sounds like actually you're quite a bit broader now and going even wider than that. So yes. just to make this a little more real yeah. for our listeners, could you give sure. a couple more examples perhaps of this sure. in practice? So where where we started, we wanted to demonstrate a product. I think the, the quintessential takeaway coffee uh, cup or beverage container was the most 
realistic place to start for us in the initial stages. And it's also, by volume, it's one of the highest items sold globally. So we thought, let's start with something that's daily, that's in everybody's uh, mind from the moment they wake up. Um, it's almost shaped around their commute. And we can take the journey from there, test it on that one product line, and then expand to other product lines. So by the time we rebranded and moved into food, we had already completed over half a million orders with just beverages. And so what we realized was after that, we thought, I think we know what we're doing now. So we were comfortable with the idea of transitioning into food. Actually, we got pushed into the idea of going into delivery because of COVID. So we had anticipated to do delivery much further down the line, but naturally the, the needs of our customers changed overnight. People weren't necessarily going to offices. They weren't really leaving the house. And as we all know, the delivery companies did remarkably well during that period of time. And we know that coming out of that, our habits have changed and we still consume a large amount through delivery at home. So we moved into food. We started collaborations with the likes of Just Eat, which is one of the biggest delivery partners globally. We're now expanding our partnership further with them, which is really exciting. And they are very motivated. You know, this isn't a marketing exercise for them. This is something that they have to either or actively are reporting on and that hence they're concerned about. So you might have seen Just Eat publish their annual sustainability report and they cover scope one, two and three. They might not buy the packaging, but all of the packaging that goes through their platform has to be measured from a CO2 perspective. Now, what's interesting is when we built Club Zero, we worked with sustainability experts, Giraffe Innovation, to measure the full LCA from the production of the product and the full life cycle operational CO2 combined to understand how much carbon do we use across the entire number of uses. And so we use half the amount of CO2 to single-use packaging. And that's really important for our partners because we essentially help them on their scope three if you're a delivery company. If you're a major restaurant or you're a major brand, we half the amount of CO2 that they're currently consuming um, with their single-use packaging. So these are great wins, and it does affect their bottom line if they are over a certain size and they have to report, especially if they're going to be paying EPR charges from next year and they'll, they'll have to declare what that looks like. So this is definitely what the value propositions are for, for what we do. And Safia, there's a space in between those as well, right? Which is the, the recyclable and potentially endlessly recyclable options as well. So if you take, let's say, you know, a disposable cup versus, you know, something made out of aluminum or glass or steel that can, you know, in theory be recycled endlessly. Yeah. How would you say those are comparable to a multi-reuse model from either the emissions perspective or otherwise? So I love the idea of perpetuity when it comes to certain materials and recycling, right? So glass is brilliant, aluminium, steel. These are great materials. These are fantastic materials. The challenge that you have in putting them in reuse systems, forget about you know the, the actual cost of um, acquiring that material and producing it and embodied CO2, just put parking that aside. The biggest challenge is moving that product around. So if it's glass, it's very hard. It's infinitely heavier. And most of the conversations that you see in packaging are about light weighting. Like how do we create something that's lighter? How do we start to shave off the margins on 
shipping this product across the world, etc. Now, that conversation needs to change because you don't ship things across the world if it's reuse. You actually only move it within a certain you know, territory. You don't need a global supply chain for reuse systems. You need a very local supply chain. So when people do more of these number crunching tests, they'll figure out a way to reintroduce more premium materials because you can in a tighter supply chain. You're not shipping it across the world. But you would still need to compete for the price that it, you know, it entails to move that product and the number of uses that you get out of it and the value that you get out of it before it's recycled. For us, we just had to have products that were going to mimic single use as close as possible so that you don't make too many major surprises for all your stakeholders. We're already moving them into a reuse space, completely changing the material, completely changing the UX. Complete. We just wanted to try and minimize the number of things that we were asking them to do or the number of things that we were asking them to get used to do. So that's one of the reasons why we felt Let's pick a material that has a lot of versatility, can be reused material-wise, maybe not infinitely, plastics maybe three or four times you can recycle the same content and then the material just starts to fall apart and it can be uh, downcycled. Ours can be upcycled because we don't use dark plastic, so it can be upcycled into better products and food grade. We only use polypropylene. We haven't yet started using any other materials. And the idea for us is to find a way to bring that material back into our own products and close that loop as well over time. And the alternative is if they are branded, basically give that material stock to the brand to look after at the end of its use. So they can take that uh, product and recycle it and essentially they'll own that material. I think that's a great model, Safia. I was speaking with the chief sustainability officer of a large bottle making company recently. And one of the challenges that, that this individual put forward is that when you think about, let's say, reusable bottles, for yeah. instance, the problem is that the bottle starts to get quite, quite scuffed. It doesn't look so nice. You yeah. can't really yeah. put forward a bottle of beer and the, the, the bottle has scratches all over yeah. it. Exactly. Uh, and the same is true, I think, for aluminum and, and a lot of other formats. Uh, yes. Is there a trade-off there or can you actually work around this? It's very subtle. It's about just how you treat the product. And I don't mean how the consumer treats the product, how you treat the product from a design perspective. So there are certain materials that will have a higher propensity of showing wear and tear, glass, stainless steel, aluminum, those uh, included. Ceramics doesn't, right? So ceramics... You, you can't really tell if it's got some scratches or nicks, really, unless it chips away. With plastics, plastic is actually a softer material. And if you texture it in the right way, you can't tell degradation over time either. So these are subtle design things that we've, we've implemented, which has worked for us so far. Our products are reused 250 times. So they have a minimum life cycle of 250, which is quite high. And we, I'd like to say we will have a range of other materials at some point. But for the time being, what we are really targeting is the price parity to compostable packaging and making sure we, we really fix that. We really, we really get very good at that. And then over time, as we diversify, we might have clients that say, you know, we want something a bit more premium or et cetera. So we'll, we'll get to that spot but for now it's like mass market how do we build something that can last multi-uses and we generate revenue per use 
so the product pays back for itself very quickly and then ultimately it's how do you keep customers happy and excited about using it and Safia, you'd mentioned the governance and regulatory side of this when you think about the outcomes of cop and and just the general environment for this i think that a lot of us felt that cop could have been more assertive on certain topics circularity being one of them European regulation, I think, has at least mm. conceptually gone quite a bit yeah. further. What are your thoughts on this space? Like coming out of COP, do you feel enthusiastic or a bit despondent? UK, Europe, US, where, where do you think the, the space is headed from a regulatory perspective? So the circular economy plan is really important, right? And this is pre-COP. This has been in motion for a while. It's maturing and it's going through the European Commission and it's there. And the first area of attack for them is food service, which is great. That's exactly our market. So I, I'm, I have no complaints on that regard. Maybe some that we're not under the EU jurisdiction anymore. So that's a shame. But we are seeing the same sort of approaches being evaluated now, interestingly, across you know ex-Commonwealth countries. So I think this will just become the sort of approach as plastic bags have had we are going to see charges on single-use packaging in various cities at a municipal level, not federal level, and cities taking charge. The COP thing is interesting. There's a great podcast I would listen to by Christina Figueres, which is called Optimism and Outrage. She covered COP really well. While I was there, I was listening to it. And my key takeaway from COP is that it is going to be incredibly hard to bring everybody along, right? That's just never going to happen. If you look at governance structures, the most successful are going to be businesses that are multinationals or any businesses that have like a traditional triangle sort of governance structure where you have clear direction from somebody at the top, the CEO, you have a team below them, and then you have maybe regional teams that all report into a simple governance structure. My theory is that if you have a multinational style governance structure, whether you are a company, startup, or a country, China operates as a multinational. It operates like a Cisco or an IBM. And it has the capacity to put plans down and execute on those plans. Where you have democracy that doesn't mirror this governance structure, you are not going to see change. Because... Climate change is something that we cognitively cannot understand. It is not visual presence. If climate change was a physical alien monster that was ripping people's heads off and like rampaging, we would all come together very quickly and sort the issue out. If climate change was even visible brown smoke, CO2, and you could smell it, it would be more effective, but it's not. We can't see it. It's not tangible. We cognitively cannot understand the threat of it. So democracies, if you are a US democracy where you have four years, 10 years, and it's a revolving door, are you in the agreement? Are you not in the agreement? What's going on? I just don't see much of an evolution. I'm not hanging any hope on 
democracy. What I'm saying is democracies today are set for failing us in the context of climate change. If you are a business, you are you know, your own entity and you have the capacity to make plans and they don't get deterred and you can see them through, those nations, those organizations will be successful. Everybody else, not happening. The best example is COVID. Globally, we have failed to figure out an equitable distribution of vaccines. And we are going to see the resurgence of new variations emerging from population where they haven't received their vaccinations, and it will spread to the rest of the world. The concept of not distributing vaccines globally, it's like saying we're going to open a corner for you to pee in the pool. Well, it doesn't work like that. COVID isn't going to stay in the corner. It's going to spread throughout the pool. That's, that's how it works. And so if we haven't managed to demonstrate on this one very threatening, globally impacting thing that we have experienced in the last two years, we are certainly not going to do it with climate change. So what I would say to everyone is, if you're a business, you have control, if you're a multinational, you have control. And we're seeing it. We're seeing movements happen at city level. They're not waiting for federal governance. Same happening in the states. They're not waiting for the entire state to sort of figure it out. You have businesses that have banned people from uh, entering unless they're masked. And this is how you're going to see this evolve. And that's not bad news because we all have to half the amount of CO2 we use. So I'm not saying we're doomed. I'm just saying there is a, just a really clear way of focusing your hopes on what will work and what won't. Sophia, there's so much to, uh, <laughs> to unpack and dwell on. A couple of things that I totally love is the, the pee in the pool. I have to admit, I did steal that from a podcast with Neil deGrasse Tyson. So I, I, I do not own that. I, I heard that recently and now I'm just all over it. So <laughs> it's a good one. I think, <laughs> I think the sound of Neil deGrasse Tyson referring to the pee in the pool situation <laughs> is probably something one wants to hear again and again as well, right, in itself. I mean, one of the things that I kind of often think about there is we're doing exactly the same thing as with your COVID example, right? Because we're yeah. also ignoring the Southern Hemisphere here. And we're actually saying, look, we're going to solve emissions for London and New York and Paris. And actually, this is a global problem that if we don't solve it in, in Mumbai and Karachi and Dhaka and Nairobi, right, and, and Johannesburg, it's, it's not getting solved for anyone, no. frankly. No. The other okay. thing that I kind of find interesting is how we do kind of, you sort of mentioned this cognitive overload where we can't really understand mm. the problem. Mm. And I really see this coming out in two ways. One is we keep talking about 2050 as oh, though there's far. literally like a millennium kind of clock running, right? A Y2K virus we're expecting yeah. at 2050 if we don't do anything by then, which I think is hugely, hugely misleading in itself. Totally. The other is we keep talking about CO2 right? As though yeah, CO2 yeah. is like this one simple metric that if we just optimize it, we're, we're good to go. Whereas it's so much more complicated than that. But just coming back to the subject of regulation and unpacking how this needs to work for business. I often find, at least in the broader sustainability space, that regulation can have a bit of a risk of being somewhat sweeping, 
where the definition of how do you do this and what's yeah. expected. And, and circularity regulation is a great example of this, right? There's a, a push to less single-use packaging, but not much talk of how you do this and how you drive this. And if you're a small business, mm. what does that mean? Your customers are large enough where they can have dozens of individuals in their companies figuring this out and working with innovative uh, startups like, like you guys. But what do you do if you don't have access to those resources, if you're a smaller company, an SME, a supplier to a company like Just Eat? Like, what does that look like? So I think what you're talking about is uh, standards, like what, what does good look like? How do you follow it? I think the the market is going to be open. There'll be there'll be options for everybody. There'll be good, bad options. There'll be slightly inferior options. There'll be the best options, as you expect to happen in any maturing market. We're still very nascent reuse, if you think about it. We're just at the beginning of something that's going to be huge. So to answer the question, how do they access? I think by that, I would say businesses like us are already producing products that you don't have to have CapEx for you simply just buy a service for. So we have started in the position where we've built a product that is accessible to the smallest at the bottom of the food chain. So your small independents, your cafes, we have a solution out of the box they can grab and they can start with. Of course, there are other more sophisticated products that we are looking and designing for the bigger players, but we've essentially started from the baseline. You know, our cups and our containers, these are products they don't buy. They rent them. They don't have to worry about CapEx. They don't have to produce their own molds. They don't have to figure out how are they made. And they don't have to go through all that process. We've done it for them. So in that way, you have like a baseline of products, which are what these are. They're open. They're accessible to everybody. And I think over time, there'll be other versions that others will be doing, which will be equally effective and obtainable. Obviously, the bigger you go, they want something that might be more bespoke. They might want more brand involvement. They might want more co-branding. They might want more technology integration, et cetera, et cetera. So that, yeah, there is more complexity in that. But to answer your point, the, the baseline, more entry-level products, that's where we started. That's kind of our entry point. Safia, thank you so much. I'm aware we're nearing the end of our session, so I kind of have one very large question, potentially, or, or very small, depending on how you take it, which is, if you were to pick three major unlocks that would accelerate sustainability in 2022 for your business, but also for other businesses like yours and for the broader transition, and they can be any unlocks, right? You can take your pick. What would they be? I would love to see some sort of incentives from the government as a sustainability business which incentivizes us, that doesn't tax us as much. So some sort of tax break, or maybe we have zero VAT, or we have a way that we're not classified in the same way as every other business out there. That would be good. That'd be one. Option two would, on the sustainability side, of course, legislation and regulation that would expedite opportunities for us in the market. So we have an opportunity to grow faster, grow bigger. Communications, I always feel, is left out, but I always think is the most important. Municipalities, I don't think, create enough communications for citizens. I don't see it happening enough. It's odd. Like, I know it's possible. We did it. When I say we, 
you saw communications really ramp up during COVID. And by we, I actually realize it's certain businesses that did it better than others. So TFL did a great job at creating awareness on what to do, what was good, what was not so good in terms of how you behaved and, and communicating directly to consumers around what works, what doesn't work, what to do with a certain type of packaging item, where to put it, what bin does it belong in. These are just basics that I don't think, certainly not uniform in terms of information across citizens. So I do think there is a thing that's missing from a municipality level where it comes to communications, which would really help to explain to people what is and what isn't working. They are driving, for example, more electric charging points, but generally for London to become cleaner. And this is all part of the fact that we have too much nitrous oxide in London. And so to do that, you really have to educate customers a great deal more. Suddenly, they're under the impression that there's not enough charging points across London. Well, if you live in London, you can charge at home. You don't need charging points when you're out and about. And so there are these blockers, I think, in consumers' minds. I know this because I sit down with friends and they have the same blockers. And you think that these are fairly educated people. And just having to explain to them how some of these things work. And I think there needs to be a more effort, whether it's intermittent ads through TV, radio, leafleting, whatever. If we if we have to move people along to a certain degree, they need to take some initiative in passing that communication to the average consumer. Sophia, thank you so much. This has been hugely, hugely interesting. <laughs> I think my highlights are, right, just to kind of listen out. I, I love the inner brief that drove you from being an architect over to being an, an ecopreneur. I love the I, I love the big picture thinking around how this problem requires us not to think about fencing off a little cordon of the pool to pee into. It's a problem that requires all of us to solve. I, I love the hard metrics and thinking around how circularity actually can boost revenue, boost retention, lower churn, lower marketing spend, and have emissions, most mm. importantly. And then, you know, just to leave any listeners who are able to kind of influence the policy debate with, I guess, the few big asks, right? More clear regulation that actually helps push the agenda, yeah. a better tax and incentive structure that can promote interventions that actually help solve the problem and better, clearer messaging around what kind of action is actually necessary and helpful for consumers exactly. to take their part of this big problem. The rest we can take offline over a, a reusable coffee cup. Yeah, we should definitely meet up and extend the conversation on the peeing in the corner of the pool. For sure. <laughs> awesome. Safia, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a, have a great evening. You too. And see you soon. See you soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's episode of This is Altruistic. Now for some shameless self-promotion. Altruistic provides global enterprises with the technology infrastructure needed to measure, manage, and abate their sustainability impact. Please get in touch if you want to find out how Altruistic can help your business to profitably improve your impact on the world. You can reach us on hello at altruistic.com. The notes from this episode are available in the show notes below, and you can find more episodes of the This Is Altruistic podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thank you.